Good morning. Before I do our Bible reading, we're just going to pray together. So let's pray again. Father, we're so thankful that you are a God who is real, who is alive, and who speaks to us. Thank you for the words that you've given us in the Bible. Thank you that they are living, active words that change us and teach us and guide us. And Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to help us as we listen to your word being read and taught this morning, that you would do those things for us, that you would teach us, you would guide us, and you would show us Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Our first reading is from Deuteronomy, and we're reading in chapter 15, verses 7 to 11. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for cancelling debts, is near so that you do not show ill will towards the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Our second reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 16, and verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And our New Testament reading is Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Good morning. Uh, so, yeah, I'm glad that David got you guys ready for that good morning. Uh, so this is, a, apologies for a little bit of disorganization, but I just wanted to like announce or like let everybody know that our Ailey Baird and Stephen Grant are getting, you guys just want to stand up just real quick. We just have to make a big deal out of this. So, so Ailey and Stephen are getting married this week, if everybody wants to give them a round of, yeah. <laughs> All right, you guys can sit down. Uh, do you mind if I just pray for you guys really quick? Yeah. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for Ailey and Stephen. We thank you for uh, the presence that they've been in our church, in our church community, the way that they've uh, loved other people, especially I'm thinking of uh, the younger students that, that Ailey does pancake mornings with. Uh, I pray as they begin this new journey of unity as uh, husband and wife, God, that you would use us uh, this church cornerstone to be a means of grace to help bless them and help build strength in, in their family, God, going forward. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, congratulations. Okay, well, now we got that out of the way. The sappy stuff is over. Um, I, feel, I, I feel like I've, I have a little bit of a, a reputation of like, oh, Jeff is preaching. He's probably going to have like a clip from like a movie or a song lyric or something like that. So I just want to show you that I'm into high art too, all right? It's not just Jared, okay? I can do art, all right? So let me show you, okay? So uh, does anybody know what, what this painting, who this painting is? Or I mean, what do you see when you, see, when you look at this painting? It's not a movie, that is true. That is true. Uh, so this is a painting, uh, it's the, the artist is Albrecht Dürer. He's a, a, a German painter from the late uh, 14th century, okay? Uh, and you can actually see this if you go and, and visit Munich. Uh, this is, if you go to the museum, this is what they have written, uh, like next to the, to the painting. It says, I, Albrecht Dürer of Nuremberg, portrayed myself in appropriate colors, age 28 years. That's the little script in, uh, in Latin there in, in the corner. But this is how, how the, the, the gallery describes it. It says, each word of this inscription in Latin was carefully chosen. This portrait, probably the most unusual in the history of art due to its immediate frontality and meticulous execution, touches most viewers. Durer based the style of this portrait on icons of Christ the Savior. His hand is raised in the sign of a blessing. The details, however, are highly individual. The direct gaze and the hand in the picture uh, address scene and the act of creating. So here's, here's a, a painting by uh, Leonardo of uh, Christ the Savior. Okay, you can see, you can see the similarities. But what is, what is Albrecht creating with this painting? What, what, is, what message is he trying to, to portray about this act of creating? Well, it's obvious that he really wants attention on himself, right? He's drawing a, a self-portrait. He loves self-portraits. So, uh, you know, back in, in this time, he would get commissioned to, to draw uh, biblical works and things like that for very wealthy people. But on his own time, the thing that he really liked to do was draw pictures of himself. And this is probably the, the, the most famous of his self-portraits, right? And the, uh, obviously, the allusions to, to Christ are, are very intentional. So he's making a statement, right? I can create myself. I can create my own story. I can create my own narrative. I can create my own mythology. I think 
that we're basically the same as old Albrecht here. Now, I don't know about you, I don't paint self-portraits. If I did, I probably couldn't paint it in a way that would actually honor myself in any way, okay? It would be like a stick figure or something like that. I'm sure John could probably paint a pretty good self-portrait, okay? But what do we, how, how do we self-mythologize? With selfies, right? All of us have taken a selfie. Maybe, maybe we don't take a lot of selfies, but all of us here have probably taken a selfie from time to time. And I thought, just in case you were wondering, if you wanted to help your selfie a little bit, what are the tips? Well, uh, always remember to look at the camera. Okay, that's really important for the selfie. I mean, it's going to help you get that sort of, that look, right? If you're looking at the camera, okay? You want to extend your head away from your neck. Okay, that's really important, okay? You don't want the double chin kind of action. You want, the, you're trying to make a flattering photo here. But here's where it gets interesting. This is where the experts come in, and this is why you got to read Cosmo to learn how to take a selfie. You don't want to look directly. You want to get a little bit of a side. That way it shows your flawless angle. Uh, and then, uh, this, I, this is new to me. I didn't realize that you did this. You have to relax your mouth and exhale, blowing through your lips a little bit, okay? <laughs> and then once you have that pose, then you start moving around to find just the right angle. So, may, okay, so maybe not all of us are really into taking selfies, but I do think in our day and age, we're all really good at being storytellers about ourselves, okay? <laughs> we all, I mean, I think the blowing through your lips thing really helps. <laughs> that is my flawless angle. So maybe the extreme version would be like social media influencers who spend a lot of time, a lot of uh, energy trying to cultivate their brand so that people know who they are and what they're about and what they're selling and all those kinds of things. Or maybe someone who's just obsessed with documenting themselves. Get that camera down, Adrian. <laughs> maybe someone who's just obsessed with documenting themselves all the time when they go on holiday. You see every 10 seconds of their trip on social media or something like that. And maybe you're not like that. Maybe you say, well, you know, I don't spend a lot of time on social media. I don't take a lot of selfies or something like that. But I do think all of us do spend a lot of time, spend a lot of energy, maybe a lot of thought on thinking about what is the story that I'm portraying to other people in my life? What is the image of myself that I really want other people to think about when they see me? Uh, it's not just a, a modern pro, uh, problem as well. When we dive here into Matthew 6 here, we see that Jesus is talking to people 2,000 years ago, and he's warning them about the same thing, right? When you're, when you're acting, when you're working out your righteousness in the world, Jesus says, do it in a way that isn't about bringing attention on yourself and doing those things. Make sure there's not a disparity between what is in your heart and what you're actually portraying, the reality that you're actually living into in your world. You see, maybe we struggle with this a little more during our time because we do have cameras, we have phones with a camera that shows us exactly what we're looking like and we can sort of cultivate a really good image about ourselves. But really, it's a heart issue, it's a human issue that we've all always struggled with. And as we move into uh, this 
chapter 6 of Matthew, uh, we're going to see how he really starts to pull this apart. Last week we looked at, uh, or or the the previous weeks, we've looked at sort of bad behavior in chapter 5, right? He was saying, uh, you might think this is a sin, but this is also a sin. You might think this is a sin, this is also a sin. And he's getting to that core motivation of our being. Well, now we're going to look at some good things that we might do, good, righteous practices, like giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. And Jesus is getting at the same, the same issue, the same heart issue. Does what is going on in your heart match what's going on with your actions? Now, uh, when, when I'm, whenever I'm reading the Bible, I'm always very curious about chapter breaks in the Bible, like when the scribes who put in the chapter breaks, how they decided to, to break them up. Because sometimes I find it'll be right in the middle of a thought or right in the middle of a story, and I'll think, why did they just cha- like change it right there? Well, I do think Matthew 6 is a perfect, uh, they just, they did a fantastic job of breaking up this, this section. Because we ended Matthew 5 with a, this really high note. If you were here last week, we looked at uh, the, the passage where it says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's this sort of statement about wholeness and what we're trying to live to. And then we start chapter 6, and it really starts with a thesis statement. And as someone who grades a lot of papers, I really appreciate a strong thesis statement. And he says, do not practice your righteousness in front of others. It's easy to see why, why the monks started with... Uh, created this chapter break right here. But then it immediately gets into unpacking how we might be tempted to practice our righteousness. And and really note that phrase, your righteousness, right? He's getting to to the fact that this is something that we do. We think about ourselves. It's this individualized version of, of trying to be devotional, trying to worship God, trying to live an, an honest life in front of him. But it's our way of doing it right? He says, your righteousness, not true objective righteousness. But then he gets into sort of like a formula, right? He says, when you do this good thing, whether it's almsgiving or prayer or fasting, do not do that like the hypocrites because they've received their reward in full. But when you do this really good thing, do it this way instead. And then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And then he ends with a really good conclusion. He says, don't do things for worldly gain because none of that really lasts, right? He uses this metaphor about things that last and contrasts it with things that don't. So if you look at the structure, it's, he's obviously recapping here. And I think sometimes when we read this passage, uh, and we kind of pull it out of context, and sometimes there's a temptation to maybe read it a little excessively literalistically, we can we can turn it into something that's maybe just about money, right? Like if you only read uh, verses 19 through 21, there's a temptation to think like, well, he's only talking about like things that I invest in, right? Don't don't, uh, spend too much energy on storing up money or something like that because you never know what could happen. What you really want to do is invest in the future. And, but when you can see it here in this structure, you see that it's really operating as a conclusion and it's really about what's going on in our heart. What are the things that we're doing why are we doing them? And what is the reward that we expect to get from doing those things? So we're going to hop into, we're going to focus in, rather than looking at this whole structure, we're going to focus in on the very first of these three devotional practices that Jesus explains, right? Uh, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. And 
uh, it's a pretty straightforward message. It says, don't be a hypocrite. You want to have unity between your inside motivations and your outside actions. We, Gunnar talked about this a lot last week. Uh, a reminder that God sees what's on your heart and a reminder that, that God will give a better reward for these actions if you're earnest and you have integrity in what you do when you're doing these good things. Now, I think this is a pretty good reading. I don't think that this is one of those sermons that's like, well, you, you know, this is like the easy way, but really I'm going to give you like the really insightful way to read. I think the beauty of, of passages like this is in their simplicity. You don't need to do a lot of study to get to the, the very simple truth that, that Jesus is trying to, to impart to us. But I do think there's a few confusing words, and, I, and if we, we unpack them a little bit, it'll help us meditate on this profound wisdom that Jesus is calling to. And the first one I want to focus on is the idea of, of giving to the needy. So this word that's translated here in the NIV, which is the translation we're using, give to the needy, is actually one Greek word. Um, and just a reminder, the different translations into English of the Bible, some of them, have, they all have sort of different goals in mind of why they're trying to translate. So some translations, they try to be very specific with like a word-to-word -word translation, which makes, when we're reading it, a little fuzzy, a little hard to, to follow. Some translators will try to maybe lean a little bit towards like a summary kind of uh, 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 translation, and it makes it easier to read. And the NIV would be one of those. So they chose uh, give to the needy. But the, uh, the New King James Version, it says, do charitable deeds. Uh, the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, it says almsgiving, do almsgiving. The same thing with the New American Standard Bible. Uh, the Message, if you've ever read The Message, uh, it's a, a translation of the Bible that leans really, really heavy on the summarization kind of style of, of translation. It says, uh, do something for someone else. So it would be, so when you do something for someone else, do not announce it with trumpets. So all of this means, I think, that, that the way that we should think about this uh, passage, this, or this, uh, this Greek word that's translated here, give to the needy, is really to think of, of it more like almsgiving, like it would be translated in a lot of different translations, which is just doing charity. So we're not just talking about donating money to those who are less fortunate. That's one way, it's one really good way to think about caring for the poor, but it's one of a, a whole host of practices that, that we, could, we could be practicing. It has a lot in common with Deuteronomy 15, the, the, the passage that Anna read for us this morning. Being open-handed to those who are in need. This begs the question, who are we talking about? Who are those in need? If it's not just about giving money to people who have less money than me, well, what are the things that we could be doing and who are the people who are in need of these quote-unquote things, right? Uh, later in the New Testament, James gives an example of orphans and widows. But really, I think it's whoever are those who are needy in our own lives, the people that we come across. So it could be someone who's sick. It could be someone, it could be elderly in our life, a, a friend who's recently injured. So people who are between jobs, Maybe people that we know who are struggling with mental health, people who are in the midst of abuse or are hurt or feel abandoned or traumatized by something. Maybe it's people that we know who have been systemically or generationally underprivileged and need help in those ways. But really, I think the point is it's anyone who, who needs help. 
The other thing is that I think if we only think about this in terms of money, if Jesus is telling us to give money to people who are less fortunate than us, then it also makes it a little bit easy to sort of uh, let ourselves off the hook a little bit because I don't know about you, but most of myself and most of the people I know, we don't really struggle with being very showy with the way that we give money. Uh, most of us, when we do give money, we do it pretty quietly. And I don't think it's because we've all read Matthew 6 and took it to heart. I think it's mostly because we just don't like talking about money, right? We don't like talking about money in any way, especially if we're giving it away. But when we do acts of kindness, when we do acts of love, when we do acts of charity, we kind of like being honored in that way. It's kind of a nice way for people to know that we're awesome people. Uh, when I was 19 years old, I was, uh, there was, it was a winter evening. I was on my way to uh, my girlfriend's house. Her family were hosting a dinner, and I was on my way. It was snowing, and I was following a car, and the, the car in front of me started to get a little squirrely, and they started to slide off the road on a turn, and they went on their side and sort of up on an abatement, okay? So this happened in front of me, and I'm in my four-wheel drive pickup truck, and uh, I, 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 I pull off to somewhere where it's safe, and I run over, and I can see in, in the car is a mom and three kids. So I climb on top of the, the side of the car and I open the door and I help the mom out and I help the three kids out. And we, we go sit in my car and we, we call uh, emergency services and we call their family and their family comes and picks them up. Nobody was injured or anything. Uh, it just kind of took a while to like sort of get everything settled. But when I got to my girlfriend's family's house, they wanted to know why I was late. And I had a story. And boy, did I have a story to tell, <laughs> right? I got to tell them about how kind and generous with my time and my energy. I got all wet in the snow. I'm a hero, right? So I, I, told, I regaled them with that story. And I was like, go ahead and tell other people about that too, if you want, you know. And, and I, you know, after a while there, I'm telling the story right now, right? After a while, I would sort of sneak it into conversation. Like, oh, I remember one time I rescued a family. The car was on fire, you know, all this stuff. <laughs> So it's obvious that I wanted attention, but the, the next word that I kind of wanted to focus on is, was I being hypocritical in this situation? The, the word hypocrite here, if, if you're familiar with uh, any sort of like Greek, or maybe you've, you've heard this before, but the word hypocrite really, literally, it refers to actors. So they would, they would talk, they would, it's like an allusion to like a stage actor or something like that. So when Jesus says, don't do this like the hypocrites do, He's talking about people who put on this performance. And to be clear, people in first century Palestine hearing this would have taken the same sort of like idiomatic sort of colloquial meaning that we have, right? Like when you call someone a hypocrite, you say, you act in a certain way, but I know that your motivations are different, right? Like, the, like an archetypical hypocrite would be maybe the, the frenemy at work that's like nice to your face, but they're really trying to get you fired or something behind your back or something like that. So I don't think that maybe I was being hypocritical in that, but if you think about what the, the motivation of an actor is, which is the performance, surely I was being hypocritical. Now, to be clear, I would have pulled over and, and helped even if I didn't get to tell this really fun story afterwards. But even in the moment, I knew that I was performing something that was gonna make a really great story that, sh that shed really good light on me. It was certainly part of my motivation at the time. I wasn't doing it just to honor God, is what I'm saying. I was doing it because I knew 
this was a good thing, and it was going to reflect really well on me. But equally as important, it wasn't just that this is a story that I could go and tell other people and make other people think I'm great. Again, I'm 19 years old. This is prime who am I age. I'm telling a story to myself as well. I want to know that I'm good and heroic, and I'm looking to perform the things that I can do to tell myself that story so that my left hand can know that my right hand is also really cool and awesome <laughs> and loving. But what about this other word, reward? I don't know if you're like you, or if you're like me. Well, of course you're like you. I would hope you're like you. We're talking about integrity. If you're like me, the word reward here kind of makes me a little uncomfortable. Uh, as a Protestant who believes in justification by grace, by God alone, uh, I don't like the idea that there are rewards that we could work towards, right? There's something that seems a little works righteousness here, that if we do certain things, then we can earn favor in God's eyes. I don't really like that. There's also a little bit of weird, like, prosperity gospel, you know, to it. Like, if we do good things and we honor God, then God will bless us, and maybe I'll get, like, a big screen TV or something because I was nice to someone. But if we look at how this word reward is used just in this passage, I think that we can see sort of the nuance about how it's used and, and maybe make it a little less uncomfortable. So what is the, there's two versions of reward. There's one that's, that's earthly and temporal and something that is not very wise to work towards. And there's the, the reward that is wise to work towards. The reward that is earthly and temporal is being honored by others. So I think it stands to reason that we can say that this reward that is spoken of in the last verse, in verse 4, is the honor that comes from God. So this changes a little bit that says that if you're doing these good things, you know that you're going to be honored. Your reward is being honored by God. It's not simply thinking of, 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 getting, of doing a good thing and then God comes along and says, oh, good job, now I'm going to give you this other reward. But even that, I don't know, again, maybe I'm just, maybe this is just me, but even that, I don't really feel super comfortable with the idea that my motivation for loving other people and doing good things for other people ought to be that God will honor me, that I'm trying to do this so that God gives me honor. I think, right, that a good act, loving someone else, we should do it for that own sake, right? You, you love someone just for the, for the good of loving that other people. But really, I, I think this uncomfortableness comes from the idea that, that, that we all often sort of think of, and it's, I think this is sort of just a cultural thing, that good actions are done simply because they're the good actions, that we have a duty uh, to do that. And it's not really how wisdom literature would have really thought about reward and, and what comes from doing a good action, okay? So remember, we've talked about how this whole sermon is in the, the uh, genre of wisdom literature. And in wisdom literature, a reward, something that you get from doing something good, comes from the act of doing itself, of doing it itself. So these aren't sort of brownie points in heaven that you get from Jesus. It's as a reward that you get from doing the action yourself. So the person that I think that sort of explains this the best is a philosopher named Alistair McIntyre, and he uses the example of, of teaching a child how to play chess. And he says, if you have a child that's not interested in chess and you want them to get interested in chess, one of the things you can do is, say, is tell the child, hey, if you play chess with me and you play hard, you play to win, and I know that you're actually trying to play chess, then I will give you a piece of candy. 
And he calls this external rewards. He says, all of us are very familiar in life with getting external rewards. It's if you do this thing and you do it well, then you'll get a reward that sort of doesn't have to do with the practice itself. When he says, people who love chess, people who are good at playing chess, what is their reward for playing chess? It's the joy of playing chess itself. The more you practice playing chess, the more you enjoy it for itself. And McIntyre says this extends to a whole host of practices, including religious practices. The rewards that we get that are mentioned in this chapter, in chapter 6, the rewards that we get from doing charity, from prayer and fasting, are the rewards that are inherent to the practice itself. The more you practice it, the closer you get with God. The more you practice these religious practices, these devotional practices, the more you experience a, a, a glimpse of peace and harmony with his creation here and now. And he even points to this father-son relationship, right? The more you spend time with God doing these things, the closer you will experience God's love and his warmth and his compassion to you. It doesn't change the actual love of God. It doesn't make God love you anymore. You don't earn any more honor. You're you get to experience it more because you're practicing being in this closer relationship with God, even if it's loving someone else. It's easiest, I think, to see that with prayer. The more you pray, maybe the closer you feel with God. But what we're learning here is that even loving other people will help us experience that relationship. And this is what James says as well in, in, in his epistle, right? He says, how do you practice religion? What's the best way to practice religion? It says, look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world, which I would argue is, was, has a lot to do with fasting as well. So these external rewards, the honor that we get from other people, they're vapid, right? They feel great at the time, but they don't last. The eternal the, the internal reward is the eternal reward. It's getting better at worshiping God. It's good for its own sake. And the, the reward is and comes from doing it well and experiencing now in this life something that we'll experience fully in the new creation, which is an intimate relationship with God. Uh, this is how uh, Frederick Bruner puts it. And I, it's sort of a long quote, but I think it's worth reading the whole thing. He says, the mystics speak of loving God for God's sake disinterestedly. Moralists, I think this would count most of us, follow Kant and urge people to, to do good for its own sake without seeking any of, uh, of rewards. But Jesus knows human nature better. It's foolish to think that God calls people to almost superhuman sacrifices and then fails to respond to them. The biblical God is responsive. Heaven and Jesus' vocabulary is not just a chronological, but also a spatial term. And so when Jesus says that our reward will be in heaven, he means our reward will also be good relations with God in heaven now, and not just later at judgment. Though the judgment is always Jesus' main meaning. So what, what can we do with this? Where do we go from here? Well, I think number one is to recognize that Jesus is not leaving charitable work as an option. He doesn't say, if you practice charity, remember, if you decide one day that you want to practice charity, then remember to practice it this way. No, he says, when you practice charity. 
It's a given that to be in a relationship with God, we are going to be spending our time, our energy, and our money in caring for other people, especially people who are less fortunate than ourselves in a whole host of different ways. So if you find yourself not practicing charity, then you need to do, you need to ask yourself why. What is the stumbling block that's keeping me from worshiping God in this way? I think one of the main reasons why we sometimes fail to practice charity is having sort of a scarcity mindset about these things, right? I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough energy. But really, that idea comes from not trusting that God will honor us if we invest those things in that way. Or we think that God won't help us recoup the losses that we have. That if we give up our time to to care for someone else, then we're somehow going to lose something. We're never going to get that back. Or maybe sometimes the reason why we don't uh, practice charity to those around us is because we're harboring a little bit of bitterness. We think that they're already being blessed enough and no one's looking out for me. So I need to look out for myself rather than looking out for other people. And of course, if that's the case, then it means that we're not really meditating on God's goodness, the blessings that he does give us, that he has given us, the fact that he does love us and promises to love us always. So that's the first thing. We should be doing charitable work. But the second thing is doing constant introspection about our motivation for why we're doing the charitable work. Uh, In the movie Chariots of Fire, Eric Little sort of takes this verse out of context, so I will do the same thing. He says, uh, God says, those who honor me, I will honor. This ought to be our motivation when we're doing charity. We're doing this as an act of worshiping God, as an act of, 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 of practicing a devotional to God. It's just like It's just like our prayer time. It's just like getting into the Bible and reading. It's the way that we can draw closer to God. But we have to do it in ways that don't bring attention to ourselves. We have to realize that that we don't need to speak up for ourselves, that we're not writing our own story, that our own story is already written about us. We need to rest in the fact that God already loves us and he promises to always love us. And there's nothing that we can do to make that love grow. There's nothing that we can do. There's no practice that we can do to make God love us anymore, that God already loves us and that's already fixed and that our greatest story is the fact that we're loved by God. So these practices then become a response to this fixed reality. We do it because we're already freed to do it. We do it in a response to him. Uh, John uh, uh, called himself the apostle whom Jesus loved. He put that as his identity. Who am I? I am John, the apostle whom Jesus loved. And he talks a lot about love. He reports a lot about love in his, uh, in his gospel as well. And this is what he says. He says, uh, love one another, practice love, do deeds of love for others because love comes from God. It's not about us. It's not about our story. It's not even about our morality and our ethics. It's about the clarity of seeing the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven in our hearts now, this love of God that is in our hearts now because of what Christ has already done for us. He says, this is love. Not that we loved God, not that we did these things to earn God's love, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
as dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So practicing loving other people makes it easier to recognize God's love in our life. And recognizing God's love in our life makes it easier to practice loving other people. So I'm going to close uh, with prayer now. And then um, rather, rather than making this a time of sort of investigating uh, our sins or the way that we've fallen short, because Jesus doesn't say this is a grave sin. What he says is it's unwise to practice charity in an unrealistic way, which is to glorify yourself. It's wiser to practice it in a way that will bring us closer to God's love. So what we're going to do is, uh, well, I'll let uh, Duncan explain it, but we're going to spend time meditating on the blessings that God does shower us with so that we can respond in love by loving other people. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that there's nothing that we can do. There's no story that we can tell that will magnify us in any way that's greater than the reality that you choose to love us. There's so many parts of our life that we feel like we have to work hard at so that we can feel that our lives are meaningful and, and worthy and honorable, God. And we feel like we need that attention from other people. We feel that we need that attention from ourselves, that we need to be able to look ourselves in the mirror and say that we're great. I pray that you would overwhelm us with a sense of your love, that we would realize that there's nothing greater than being loved by you, and that we would rest in the promises that you give us to always take care of us, to always love us, and the hope that we have to be fully united and to fully taste your peace with you in heaven. It's in your name we pray.